I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Hi, Dale. Hi there, Chris. Hi. Hi, hi. Hi. Hi to everybody joining in. My name is Chris Britt, and I'm hosting a podcast today with my guest, Dale Borglum, also known as Ramdev. Perhaps you can tell people how you got the name Ramdev. We have a topic that's of interest to both of us today. We're going to look at all the teachers Dale has had in his life. And Dale is many things. And uh, off the top of my head, he's an author, a meditation teacher. He runs the Living Dying Project, which is a very special program. Uh, and he's also a friend and a teacher of mine. And I think I've known you for about at least seven years. So I've been, yeah, I've been very interested in the work and I've learned some very important practices that I put into my daily life. But Dale has had encounters and meetings with fantastic teachers from the, the 20th century. Everyone from the Dalai Lama to Ananda Maima, uh, Suzuki Roshi, all these big names and um, some lesser known names. So we're going to spend this next uh, 40 minutes or so going into personal stories that Dale has, as well as reading some quotes, reflecting on the messages 
So Dale, um, is there anything you'd like to say before we start? Yeah, I'd like to correct you just one little bit. And you said we're going to talk about all my teachers. So that would be, that would be a very long show. I'm a very stubborn person. I, I've needed a lot more teachers than the, than the few that we have on our list here. So I just wanted to make that clear that there's going to be really only a, a small percentage. But we picked out the ones that I think have some of the more interesting stories that I can share about them. But by no means are we saying that these are the only good teachers, that they're my only teachers. There's many, many wonderful teachers. Right. Okay. So, Dale, we are, you've spoken a lot about Neem Karoli Baba. Of course, uh, he's your guru. And I know a lot of people know of you because of that association. And before we go into the other list of teachers, perhaps you can uh, say something about Neem Karoli Baba. Well, I did another podcast on the Beer Now Network with, it was a whole podcast of Maharaji stories. And I'm not going to go into too many of those. I'm not going to go into any of those stories, actually, I don't think, because they're, they're readily available. Uh, he is the uh, being at the center of my heart. And all these other teachers I'm going to mention were instrumental in, in any wisdom that I have. I, I do teach meditation and the spiritual path. And anything I teach is really only the wisdom of these people, some of the people that I'm going to talk about flowing through me. It's not my wisdom, it's the wisdom. But uh, even though I'm not going to talk about Maharaji, he's central. He's, he's the conductor of the orchestra, if you will. And he, even though I met him in India, and even though uh, in some outer way he had Hindu temples and they had Hindu rituals during Hindu holidays, like for instance, right now is a Hindu holiday called Guru, I'm sorry, called Durga Puja. It's uh, honoring the mother for nine days in uh, October, usually it is. So right now is a very special time in Hinduism. And I, when I was in India, one of the times was during Durga Puja, and I was at one of Maharaji's temples up in the Himalayas, and there was a, uh, a Vedic fire ceremony with priests and pouring ghee and honey and yogurt and rice into this big, huge fire. But the point I want to make is not that so much, is that the opposite, that Maharaji was much more unattached and eclectic than being a Hindu. He often talked to the Westerners about Christianity and somebody asked him how to meditate once and he said meditate the way Christ meditated, which was kind of interesting because first of all, nobody knew who Christ meditated and secondly, how did he know? <laughs> <laughs> and so somebody said, how did, how did Christ meditate? And Maharaja got quiet and then the tears started coming down his cheeks and he said he just lost himself in love. He became love. He gave his, he gave his body for the Dharma. So of those of us who were with him, some have become Tibetan Buddhists and some just cling to Maharaji's uh, relationship, if you will, and some have become Sufis and all different things so that it's not like uh, there's one way. And that's why I have, we're going to talk about teachers here who are Hindu teachers and Tibetan Buddhist teachers and Vipassana teachers and Zen teachers and 
I don't remember who all is on the list, but it's a, it's a very eclectic group of people. Right. Uh, so uh, I feel a great blessing that, that he, in a way, set me free. Although I will confess that the mantra he gave me was a Christian mantra, and I grew up in the Christian church, and as soon as I got off the college, I said, I can't take this anymore, and I didn't go to church anymore. So I had to go to India. I had to go to Maharaji to find Christ again in a kind of a backwards way, if you will, rather than uh, being with that all through my, my life. And in fact, Carl Jung says that to become fully integrated, you have to go back at some point to the religion of your childhood. So I, I went back kicking and screaming, but here, here we are. So Dale, how did you go from the religion of your childhood, getting to college, and then either studying with your first meditation teacher or going to India? What, before we, we go through all these stories, people will say, well, how did Dale land here? How did, so tell me a little context. Let's still see if like I'm coming down maybe. Okay, I have a PhD from Stanford in mathematics. And it was a very fortunate, but uh, rather remarkable confluence of events that I was getting my PhD in the Bay Area in the late 60s when the consciousness explosion was exploding. It was exploding at Harvard with Leary and Alpert. It was exploding at at Stanford, particularly in the Bay Area in general, because of Ken Kesey and electric Kool-Aid acid tests. So the psychedelic revolution was happening when I was beginning to write my PhD thesis. It was a very difficult <laughs> intertwining there for a few years. I eventually pulled it off. But uh, I had gone to college right after Sputnik went up. The American government had some kind of unspoken policy of trying to shove the smart kids into science so we could catch up with those darn Russians. And I became a mathematician because they gave me A's in math. And I got B's in English. So I figured, well, I must be a mathematician that are giving me A's, right? <laughs> and uh, so then I started uh, meditating and taking psychedelics and going to encounter groups with Fritz Perls and getting Rolf by Ida Rolf and all these weird things. And I realized I didn't want to be a mathematician. I didn't want to be a scientist. I wanted to explore. I wanted to find out who I was. I wanted to suffer less. I wanted to find love and devotion and compassion and, and connection. And Stanford didn't seem to know about that. <laughs> it's like I went between undergraduate and graduate school. I went to the two best departments in my field. And my professors were not happy people. And they were supposed to be some of the best in the world. So I said, something's wrong here. There's something else that I've, I've got to find. And as luck would have it, whenever Roundus came to Northern California, he'd stay across the street from me at a mutual friend's house. And he and I got to be drinking buddies uh, when he would come and stay at Joel's house, when he would give talks at Stanford or San Francisco or wherever. So... The rest is history. <laughs> sure. And we'll leave none of this to be a mystery as we move into uh, your first meditation teacher you told me about, Suzuki Roshi. I'd love to know about uh, how you find, found out about him, what the first uh, encounter was like, how did you feel in his presence, and what has stuck with you all these years later. And before we do, 
I want to read a few quotes by him and we can use this as a bit of a reflection. So there's a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind that he wrote and it says, uh, here's a quote, if your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are a few. And there's another quote that says, we're all perfect, but there's some room for improvement. <laughs> we'll start with that. Okay, well, it's hard to describe, it's hard even to imagine what San Francisco was like in the 60s in the late 60s. I mean, I remember going to a, a concert at the Fillmore one night and it was uh, Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company. And then there was Jimi Hendrix, the Jimi Hendrix experience. And then there was Grace Slick and the Jefferson Airplane. Those were the three bands playing that night. And I figured it's gonna be like this for the rest of my life. This is fantastic. And a year later, both Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix had overdosed, they were dead. and uh heroin came to the the hate and things started going downhill but during this time there was a real spiritual renaissance there were these holy man jams where sufi sam and suzuki roshi and uh all these different teachers uh steve gaskin from the farm sometimes ramdas was there all these different teachers would come together and people were singing and dancing and it was just pretty incredible. Uh, Suzuki Roshi came to America to be the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, which was the community church for the Japanese American population in San Francisco, a very uh, traditional kind of a thing. But he started then having a meditation session every morning at, I forget, 5 or 6 a.m., and hippies started coming and none of the Japanese people wanted to meditate particularly and all the hippies were coming. So all of a sudden there were two things going on. There was kind of the traditional church thing. And then there was these people who wanted to get enlightened. We were all kind of very naive about how to get there and what it actually was, but there was a great thirst for that as well. There is a satellite Zendo down in Los Altos right next to Stanford. And I would go and meditate mostly in Los Altos, but then occasionally at the Zen Center when there was like weekend sessions uh, where Roshi and some of his students would, we would gather at 300 Page Street at the Zen Center. And in Soto Zen, which was his school of Zen, there is the tradition where you there, there's really no, there's no teaching of anything other than sitting, just, uh, Zazen, Shikantaza, you just sit there facing the wall. There's nothing to do other than sit. There is a tradition, though, that at certain points during longer retreats, one of the teachers, Suzuki Roshi, or one of his senior students, would walk behind you holding this big stick. I think it's called the Kyatsu, but I might have forgotten the Japanese name. And you could sort of sense them or hear them coming. And if you bowed, they'd whack you on the soft part of each shoulder as a way of kind of awakening you and getting the energy flowing again. Mm -hmm. And the experience that I found really remarkable 
is when Suzuki Roshi did it, it felt so different than when anybody else did it. Hmm. Suzuki Roshi hit you with the kiatsu, might be the wrong name. Whenever he would do it, it felt like just love and tenderness was flowing through the body. And when somebody else did it, it felt kind of harsh. And it felt like they were hitting exactly the same place. Maybe I was imagining something, but it really felt like he was imparting a blessing as he hit you with the stick. So people hear about Zen and they think, oh, they're hitting people with sticks. How, how primitive, how awful that is. But it was really a blessing. And uh, I meditated with him. Then I went off to India. When I came back, he was still alive, but he was near the end of his life. He was getting very frail. And yet, and his wife was always getting, trying to get him to put his socks on and to wear a hat to keep warm. She was afraid he was going to uh, become ill. But uh, he was, there was this very uh, stark practice of sitting there facing a wall. There's never talk about love or things like that. But yet, when he spoke, when he interacted with you, he was one of the sweetest, kindest, most tender people I'd ever met. When he would laugh, it was like the sound of a bubbling brook. Uh, he was just somehow with the, the the decades of facing the wall and, and just watching the mind and being in the body that the impediment of the open heart dropped away without even thinking about the open heart, but just, just, so there's, there's some often unspoken assumption, wonderful assumption in Buddhism, that if you just shut up and pay attention, that your inherent true nature, your radiant nature will gradually appear if you can surrender to the present moment again and again and again. But usually we come to meditation, I've got to fix this, I've got to suffer less, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And he was this living example of trusting the process, trusting this letting go of the moment. And it sounds like that experience you had of getting tapped on the shoulder was a wholly new experience for you. I mean, it's remarkable that you, you're, you're telling me this. Is there any other moments in that first phase of studying with a meditation teacher that's memorable? Well, it's, I don't know how much this had to do with him in particular, but it may be hard to imagine how painful it was to be uh, into year eight or nine of studying mathematics at Berkeley and Stanford, and then going to the Zendo and sitting on a cushion for two days with no talks, nothing to think about, nothing to do, uh, great pain in the body. My body wasn't used to cross-legged being still. And yet his presence in the room, his living example of the kindness and the, the, the softness that had come out of this very, in some ways, harsh practice was what made it, he was the inspiration to continue. In the beginning, it was, I mean, in the beginning, we didn't have too many examples. Why am I meditating? What is this Zen thing? I mean, I, I'm a Lutheran, right? <laughs> it's like, and here I am, and they're, they're, we're doing the Heart Sutra in Japanese or something like that, and people are pounding on these big, huge wooden things that 
create the rhythm for the Heart Sutra. So uh, once again, there were other stories that we could go into of how committed he was. There was one time when he was creating a rock garden down in Tassajara, this country uh, retreat center for longer retreats down in the Carmel Valley. And there was, he wanted to move a big boulder into this particular place in the rock garden. You know, they have the raked sand and it's all very formal and they have a couple boulders here and a big one over there. He wanted to move this really big boulder. And he got his biggest student or at least one of the biggest, strongest students and they huffed and they puffed, they tried to move the boulder. They couldn't budge it. So they gave up the student went off about his business and after a bit nobody could find suzuki roshi they started looking for him and they found that the boulder was where he and the other guy had tried to move it to it was there and they looked and he wasn't anywhere around they finally found him in his bedroom and he was asleep and the bedroom was covered with vomit and he didn't wake up for like half a day or something so that he got he got so centered he he pulled so deeply into his energy that he did what the two of them couldn't do. And it just it, it it just took so much from the core of his being that he was gone for a while. So that's the intensity that he brought to his practice. And yet out of that came that sweetness. So that to me was the lesson. Yeah. What what the effort is about, what is right effort? Hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's a tendency uh, for people, including myself, to get caught up in the the miracle stories and the, the stories of their power, and yet you, what you took from it is the sweetness and the the right effort part. Besides uh, moving, maybe to another country, flying from here uh, to India, I'm very interested to hear about your experience with Ananda Maima. I had heard of Ananda Maima through. Uh, talks by Ramdas, and he quotes a, uh, a poem of hers that's absolutely beautiful, and I'll read it in a few minutes. But you t tell us just a little bit about Ananda Maima. Yes, she was a female saint who uh, went into an arranged marriage when she was, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 14 or something, married a much older man, and he. Uh, expected her to clean the house and do the cooking and be a traditional wife. And at some point, uh, she started being visited by living spirit. And in the middle of the night, instead of sleeping, she'd be dancing around in the living room, making love with God. And her husband started getting a little myth that the, the house wasn't as clean as he would like. And he says, what are you doing? And he began to see that she was having these remarkable experiences. And he eventually became her devotee. And then eventually she became one of the more popular, and I'm not saying that in any derogatory way, but one of the best known gurus in all of India. Here's a picture of her when, on the cover of this book when she was young. And then I'll, here's another picture of her, the way she looked when I was here, maybe uh, with her, maybe ooh, five years before the end of her life or so. And she was a very traditional Hindu in some way, 
which made it difficult for Westerners to be around her in the sense that uh, there's the caste system in India. They claim that they've taken it away, but it was there at least when I was there, and I'm, I'm sure it still is in a lot of ways. So that the notion is that, like in the castes, uh, if you're a Brahmin, you can't eat food that's not cooked by a Brahmin. So here were these Westerners who were not only, uh, they're, they're not just a lower caste person, they're not even in the castes, so uh, they were not happy that we were there. And the same thing happened with Maharaji, actually, in the beginning, that, that the Indians were not that, that fond of all these Westerners coming and hogging the front row seats, if you will, at Darshan. And I, one time, one of the Indians say, the only thing that the Westerners were good for was taking color pictures of Maharaji. <laughs> <laughs> and he paid so much attention to the Westerners at the end of his life for some reason or another, which was never really explained. But in a non and eventually Maharaji started having the Westerners cooking in the kitchen. Uh, and that would be food that the Brahmins who came to Maharaji would not want to eat. And he made them eat it. Hmm. You know, he said, these people have a very pure heart. They've come all the way from America. But Anandamai's uh, devotees, they didn't let any Westerners anywhere near the kitchen. So it was very formal in a certain way, and we couldn't really get too close to her. But at one point, uh, Maharaji and Anandamai were both in this little town called Brindavan. It's not far from Agra, where the Taj Mahal is, several-hour train ride, maybe three-hour, two-hour train ride from Delhi in northern India. And in the morning, we'd be with Anandamai, and in the afternoon, we'd be with Maharaj, and then the early evening, we'd go back and be with Anandamai, and then we'd go back to this uh, hotel-like guest house, it was called, and Ramdas and all of us would sit around talking about how miraculous it was to be spending all day with either Anandamai or Maharaji and how all these teachings that were coming down. And she, she, in fact, the two of them had great love for each other. He would come to visit and, and he would treat her like his mother and she would feed him and, and they would joke and things like that. And I remember one time though, where she was giving a more formal presentation. There's probably like a thousand people in this huge, huge room. And she was obviously at the far end of the room and she started singing and she had this tiny little weak voice. He was quite old at that point, uh, a few years from dying. He's a tiny frail voice. And yet it shook the universe. It's kind of hard to describe it. There was, even though from like a musician's standpoint, it wasn't a strong voice, but the quality of it, the tone of it, something about that was uh, something that was remarkable. And uh, there's a story about her. In, in Indian temples, uh, there is this tradition, I'm sure it's in the Vedas, it's not just a tradition, it's like a rule that you don't store up food. You trust that God will bring food for tomorrow, so only you have enough food for today, right? And each day, then the cook goes into the market and he gets some more flour for the 
chapatis or the, the puris and he gets some more vegetables, etc. So uh, Ananda, my cook, got a little bit tired of going into the market every day and buying things. He thought, I'm going to buy some extra and just put it in this back room. Nobody's going to know about it. It'll save me some extra trips to the market, right? So the next meal, they brought her her meal, which is, you know, she's an elderly lady, and they they bring her a couple of puris, uh, fried bread, and some some sabji, some vegetables, and some dal, just a little bit. And she ate it up. She said, I'd like some more. And they said, well, Ma, this is that was your usual lunch. She said, no, no, I want more. So they brought her another plate. And then she said, I'd like some more. <laughs> and the cook is starting to get really nervous because now she's eaten three or four times what she usually eats. And she kept doing this. And I don't remember, but like some enormous 10, 15 times. And she, 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 she called the cook out. And he was like quivering because he knew that she knew. Right. She said, who do you think I am? I could devour the whole universe. Don't ever do that again. So here's this little lady saying, I could devour the whole universe. And being with Maharaji was kind of like that too. Sometimes he said, the whole universe is mine. And other times he was in a different state of consciousness. He says, I don't do anything God does at all. I'm just this guy. Hmm. So sometimes he was, it's like Jesus and Christ son of man, son of God. And so when she's saying, I can devour the universe, that's that's her in her large form, if you will. So even though she's got this old lady body, there is still this, this pure consciousness, one consciousness that is not fixated on this body. And when the body dies, it's not anandamai dying, it's just the body ends. Dale, it sounds like with... Uh... Neem Karoli Baba and with Ananda Mai, being in their presence was a big part of the experience. Uh, hearing some of these quotes and reading um, some of the wisdom, it would just be words on paper. Yeah. But it sounds, of course, that when you said it shook the universe, something was going on within her, you're not within yourself uh, right. and everybody else. And uh, so. What was the value for you of that experience, knowing that a lot of people aren't going to India and may not find a guru? Um, could you just talk a little bit about about your experience with that or your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a great question. And in a way, I'm a little reluctant to talk about my guru because on one hand, it can sound kind of gauche and, and corny. And on the other hand, people can get jealous uh, the wonderful meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, said about people around Maharaji, he said, Maharaji must have been a very great teacher because he had all the most difficult students. <laughs> a lot of big egos in that group. People I would not choose to be around except we happen to share the same guru. And I'm sure they felt the same way about me, some of them. Anyway, the point here is that I needed to drag my butt to India to be with Maharaji and Anandamai and Goenka and the Dalai Lama and those people. And some of you, maybe you, are pure enough that you can get Maharaji from the comfort of sitting here in California. Uh, at one point, we were with Maharaji, and as he would do sometimes, he'd, he'd kick us out for a couple of days. He'd say, 
don't come for a couple days. I'm going to just be with the other people or what, what. I mean, he didn't even give an excuse. He just said, Jow, get out of here. I'll let you know when you can come back. So one of the women, I won't mention her name, felt she loved Maharaji so much that she'd come back anyway. And because she loved him so much, she wouldn't be able to say no. Uh, in most Indian temples, there's a wall around it to keep the thieves out, maybe keep the monkeys out. Oftentimes there's valuables in the in the the temple there's maybe some jewels on the on the deity or something like that anyway there's a wall around the temple and this woman this female western devotee started climbing over the wall to get to maharaji and he saw her and he turned and said to somebody who was actually a westerner the one person he allowed to stay what somebody he was really close to at that point he's close to everybody. It's, I'm not saying he wasn't close to the other people. But anyway, he turned to this other person and said, he, first of all, he yelled at the person climbing over the wall, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. And there's like a gatekeeper he says, get her out of here, get her out of here. And he turned to the other person. He said, they don't know, they don't know who I am. They don't understand. I'm not this body. Yeah. So in some way, in some horrible way, Maharaji did us a favor by not being in his body, because as long as he was in his body, I kept thinking, he's in India, I'm in California, I'm missing out, some of my friends are there, I'm here now, I, I'm getting over my malaria and my hepatitis, and uh, because I'm not with his body, I'm not getting the full, the full, What's the word I'm looking for here? You know, the full jolt of what it is that he was giving. And as time has gone on, I've really come to the conclusion that it's just as available now. Although certainly having him right in front of you made it very difficult to forget, right? You kept coming back to here's this embodiment of love sitting right there. You can reach out and touch him. And any lack of relationship, you can't blame on the other person because he is relationship, he is love. And any lack of connection with me and him or me and Anandamai or some of these other teachers we might get around to talking about if we ever get that far. Episode two. Is, is, the, is only because uh, my own assumed delusion of limitation. And eventually, so there's a great quote about Hanuman where Hanuman says to Ram, somebody says, who are, uh, Hanuman, who are you? And he says to Ram, when I don't know who I am, I love you. But when I know who I am, I am you. Okay, so that devotion is a way to that merging. And it's difficult in postmodern America, the elections coming up in 10 days or whatever it is. There's a pandemic happening. The, there have been times in the last month where you can barely go outside because there's so much smoke in the air. You're stuck inside. Uh, so many things happening that people say, well, let's watch some Netflix. Let's have another bottle of wine. Let's do this. Let's do that. And can we take this opportunity? I had to go to India. I mean, in a way, India is a lot like what's going on now. Things are really limited. Uh, travel was limited. Food was limited. 
the ability to connect with people was limited. And can we use this extreme time that we're in that's been kind of dropped upon us as this incredible opportunity for plunging into a relationship with where Anandamai and Maharaji and Suzuki Roshi and the Dalai Lama and some of these other teachers are. It's, it's, not, it's not different quality of consciousness. This is one consciousness. So, Dale, I'd like to close out this uh, uh, Ananda Maimar's piece with reading a poem that I just love, and I want to share that. It Great. refers back to the fact, like you mentioned, she was um, a wife and a mother, and this is uh, her her wisdom on, on that, her experience. She says, this body has lived with father, mother, husband, and all. This body has served the husband, so you may call it a wife. It has prepared the dishes for all, so you may call it a cook. It has done all sorts of scrubbing and menial work, so you may call it a servant. But if you look at the thing from another standpoint, you will realize that this body has served God. For when I serve my father, mother, husband, and others, I simply consider them as different manifestations of the Almighty and serve them as such. When I sat down and prepared food, I did so as if it were a ritual, for the food cooked was, after all, meant for God. Whatever I did, I did it in the spirit of divine service. <clears throat> Hence, it was not quite worldly, although always engaged in household affairs. I had but one ideal, to serve all as God, to do everything for the sake of God. And Maharaji said, see everyone as God, the best the best service you can do is remember God and see everyone as God. Yeah. Yeah. There's a quote. I remember Ram Das mentioning it from, uh, uh, I believe it was the Dalai Lama. And he said, meet everyone or for the first time as if you already know them. And perhaps that maybe that's what he was referring to and that, you know, the spark of the person within uh, everything else is just details. I know when I meet with someone, there's a, you know, how's the weather and all that. I, I want to just start in the middle, like I already know them. And I think we can relax into that. It's a, it's a fun experiment to play. So perhaps what, the last, yeah, go ahead. Why don't we talk about the Dalai Lama? Yeah. That's yeah. a segue, I, I think. Exactly. That would be a, let's close this episode with the Dalai Lama. So the Dalai Lama, according to the Tibetans, is the, incarnation of Chinrezi, the God of compassion. The Dalai Lama is the manifestation of compassion on this earth. And compassion is, of course, being able to have your heart open, a loving heart in relationship to suffering. And one of the things the Dalai Lama says is that the way you do that is that you, we, of course, want ourselves not to suffer. Of course, we love ourselves. So what we do is we expand what we think of as self. It's, it's not just this body, but it's the people you love. It's your family. And then it's a bigger group and a bigger group. And finally, yourself is everybody. So like Anandamai says, everything you're doing, you're doing for God because it's all the self. The self with a small S turns into the self with a big S, a capital S. 
And the Dalai Lama said, it's one of the quotes on your list there, actually, if you want to be happy, practice if you want others, I botched it. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Imagine his life where he's motivated by compassion moment to moment to moment. How simple life would be if the motivation for action was compassion, not am I getting enough? Do they like me? What does this mean? But what is the compassionate thing to do? What is the thing that alleviates suffering in the world? Let me ask you about the word compassion because I tend to get, I have a association with compassion that's different from what I now understand it to be, which is it's this idea of uh, with passion and passion in the sense of uh, the passion of Christ suffering mm -hmm. um, to be with passion. So could you talk a little bit about what compassionate means in those terms uh, and not just um, feeling sorry, not feeling sorry for, or uh, feeling with? Okay, well, so why don't we do this in, in the context of talking about the Dalai Lama at the same time, because they fit together so well. One of the things that he says about compassion, it's the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person. So if you say, come across a homeless person panhandling on the street, and you feel sorry for them, or you feel pity for them, I'm up here and that poor person doesn't have anything. I'm gonna give them some money or some food so that they're not suffering so much, but I'm up here and they're down there. That's not compassion, that's pity. Compassion is compassion with, not compassion for. Can you actually meet the person where they are? So just as an example here, in fact, one of my other teachers that we're not gonna get a chance to get to today, I guess, said that compassion is really the combination of joy and sadness. There's a joyfulness because the heart is so open, a joy that transcends happiness and sadness, wellness and illness, but sadness because there's so much suffering in the world. So you feel the suffering, there's a sadness, but you're much bigger than that at the same time because you are. I mean, we are We are vast beings. Our, our assumptions limit us. Our delusions limit us to think we're this body, this, this little chunk of stuff going through life. So I've had the opportunity a few times to be with the Dalai Lama before he got to be well-known, before Nobel Peace Prize and coming to America and stuff. So uh, I was in a room with him with two friends and him and a translator a few times. Uh, in Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha was enlightened, and Dharamsala, where the Tibetans have their main scene in India. And one time, there we were in Bodh Gaya, a very poor town in central India, where, uh, as I say, the Buddha got enlightened there. There's a lot of Buddhist centers there. And in Bodh Gaya, there are some number, let's say 30 or so feral dogs that are running around that are so neglected and hungry that you can see every rib showing through the skin. They have open sores on their bodies. They're really mangy. They're just, they're, they're not happy dogs. And the people in Bogai say, please don't feed the dogs because it just perpetuates their suffering. Let them starve to death. It's the most compassionate thing to do. And me being a kind of a softy, maybe not truly compassionate, but I felt I'm going to feed the dogs. I don't care what the hell they're saying, right? I'm going to feed the dogs. So anyway, a few days later, two friends of mine and me 
we're with the Dalai Lama. We're having a conversation and it turns to compassion. I mean, he's the Dalai Lama. That's his, his thing. And he says, well, which do you think is greater? I'm the Dalai Lama. I'm the head of the Tibetan state and the Tibetan religion. Or these 30 or so dogs running around in Bodh Gaya. And one of my friends, a good straight man, said, you're the Dalai Lama. You're much greater than those dogs, right? And he said, no. I am one and they are many. They are greater than I. And at first, Chris, I thought that he was saying this as a, a teaching device, something like a story to help you remember. But as he said those words, I could feel them sinking into me and that he was speaking from his truth that his life was equal to one starving dog in Bodh Gaya. And I just got my PhD at Stanford like a few months before I'm thinking, not only was I better than those dogs, but you know, like, hey, look at me, right? I mean, I, I was not like completely egocentric, but still I was, you know, young and kind of full of myself a little bit. And and it's just it just stunned me that this was his reality. And people say that like when he gives a talk in a big hotel or something, he meets the mayor of the town and is really nice to the mayor. And then he, he's, is, he's leaving out through the back door, through the kitchen. He has the same connectedness and warmth toward the kitchen staff as he did toward the, the mayor, that, that he's not thinking, well, the mayor I have to be nice to, but these people are just, I got to get by them to get on with my life or something. No, it's like be there with everybody. At the same time, compassion doesn't necessarily mean being nice all the time. Uh, sometimes compassion is a firm no. If we said yes all the time, the world would be really a mess, right? right? And we could even talk about the current political situation and saying no to certain things, but let's not go down that road, it's endless. So he, he would talk about my enemy, the friend, the Chinese. He knew that the Chinese were raping, torturing, and killing monks and nuns that were his followers, his responsibility in a certain sense. And he, he knew exactly what was going on, and yet he remained joyful. And I would say, how, <laughs> why, right? Most of us wouldn't, so. Well, I mean, he did have an advantage that he's the Dalai Lama and was chosen to be the Dalai Lama when he was like, yay high. And so that he was trained by the best meditation teachers and philosophers and music teachers and psychologists in all of Tibet from the time he was uh, able to stand up and assimilate teachings. So that he, he, he was taught and began to embody the fact that the nature of the heart is empty. The nature of the heart is spacious. The heart is really big enough to include all the suffering in the universe. That, I mean, right now there are countless children starving to death. Small little children, innocent children starving to death. There are people falsely imprisoned. There are people being tortured. There are people raping other people. There are people abusing other people. All this stuff is going on every minute of every day all around the planet. And we kind of push that aside so we can not be overwhelmed by it and have entertainment and have a life that has some meaning and some pleasure. 
But when we begin to practice, when we begin to go deeply enough into the heart, we don't need to protect ourselves because we begin to have a direct experience that I'm sure the Dalai Lama had. I mean, no, he did. He talked about it, that he had the experience that the heart is boundless. Some of the qualities of the uh, compassionate heart are one is a spacious heart. And by spacious, we mean it's not filled with a lot of concepts. It's not filled with a lot of I, me, mine. It's or my heart or my suffering or your suffering. It's spacious. It allows things to come and go. It's a connected heart. The heart is connected. My heart is connected to your heart. My heart's connected to me. My heart's connected to God. And finally, it's a, a warm heart that if, if your heart closes because you, you think about uh, Donald Trump or you think about Joe Biden or whatever side of the aisle your, your politics happen to come down on, then you're the one that's suffering, not them, right? That uh, one of the lines I use now in my groups that drives people nuts, you probably heard me say this, when you're dying, Donald Trump will be at your bedside. And if, if, if you have not done enough work with compassion and opening your heart, the place that automatically closes, if you think about somebody that you don't trust or you don't like, uh, it's not that he's going to physically be there, but the place that closes in you, that suffers in you, that's still in you. So can we heal that place before we die? Can we go into that trust something that we're trust the fact that we're so much larger than these assumptions these contractions and the so that in a way that's the point of being with maharaji that's the point of being with suzuki that's the point of being suzuki roshi with anandamai with the dalai lama that there are beings who have made that leap who are living examples that even though there's suffering in the world, there's a joyfulness, there's a love that's so much vaster than that. And that, so I would be sitting in front of Maharaji and I would feel anxious or inadequate because he was make, pay, paying more attention to somebody else than me, or I'm having sexual thoughts about that female uh, 10 feet over that direction, or I was feeling bored or something. Or, and I knew that he knew what I was feeling and we could tell stories that how I knew that, but he did, and he kept loving me. He loved me no matter what state of mind I was in. And I remember one day we were there, and Ramdas was having a particularly hard day. And he came up to Maharaji and said, "Maharaji, I feel so impure." And Maharaji looked up his sleeve and said, "I don't see any impurity." <laughs> so imagine being with somebody who, no matter how neurotic you're feeling is seeing the place in you that's whole all the time. That there's no thing you can do that's so aggressive or stupid or fearful that you can convince this person that you're not whole. They just seeing you as whole. And wow. in a way, that's the function of the guru. In India, they say that the work of the guru takes place in one second, that you see that, and then you have to bring that into manifestation in your own life. But I think I think that some gurus do more than that, that, that they keep supporting you along the way. And there's plenty of stories about Ananda and Maharaji and different teachers being there as, yeah. as went on and on and on. So you're saying we have to stop after just those three teachers? 
Yeah, we'll need, I think, six more episodes to get through the list. Although, so. How long do you do that? What was that? How long have we been talking? We've been talking about 50 minutes. Okay, well, that's probably long enough then. Yeah, and before we go, uh, we should thank each other. I want, to be, I want to thank you. Who's thanking who, right? This has been wonderful just to spend this time with you and, and get these stories uh, that, that you're sharing. And so before we go, I want to put a little of this in context, um, who you are and a, a little bit of what I'm doing these days. Uh, I'll start with myself, and then if you'd like to talk about your podcast or your groups, I know I've found it extremely helpful. So to keep it short, sure. uh, I have a background as a magician, and I'm also putting into practice a lot of the uh, embodiment mindfulness tools that Dale teaches. And so what I'm doing, uh, separate from Dale, is as an entertainer, I'm putting magic and mindfulness together uh, and to bring it to new audiences so that I can uh, live this work and uh, share it as I live it. So that's what I do. And uh, Dale, if you'd like to uh, just introduce what you do and what, what you're offering. So I'm the director of the Living Dying Project, livingdying.org, www.livingdying, L-I-V-I-N-G, D-Y-I-N-G.org, that we offer spiritual support, free of charge, spiritual support to people with life-threatening illnesses. And that's the dying part. The living part is I have a lot of meditation groups and clients where it's, Chris was saying, I, I talk about embodied mindfulness. That's kind of the be beginning stage. We, I, I'm a big believer that a lot of meditators, a lot of people in the West need more embodiment, grounding and centering as a foundation than for bearing the vastness of the heart. And from that vastness of the heart, going into the tantric stage of realizing the sacredness of all beings and from there dissolving into non-duality. So it's the whole spiritual path from beginning to end. And uh, I have, there's a lot of great free material on our website under the education link. And I hope, Chris, I, first of all, I'd like to thank you for coming up with the idea of doing this. And I hope we can do volume two sometime. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dale. Thank you, Ram.